This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Every garden has a story, as does every gardener. In this, our next in the occasional series of dispatches from the home garden, today we travel to the Pacific Northwest and cross the border to Canada, where we speak with a gardener, writer, and floral designer who joins us today from Victoria via Skype to share her gardening story. I'll let her take it from here. Hi, my name is Kristen Giel. I am 48 years old. I garden in Victoria, British Columbia, USDA Zone 7-8. We are just south of the 49th parallel. In Victoria, we are tucked into Puget Sound, so we hang below the U.S. Canadian-U.S. border and has to jog around the San Juan Islands. So I live in an area called Oak Bay. The oak of Oak Bay is Quercus gariana, the mm-hmm. Gary Oak, and that extends down, I believe, in various forms into the oak forests of California. Um, so we are in a drier rain shadow environment in Victoria, and the climate is generally Mediterranean, and I'd say very comparable to yeah, sort of Middle England. Now, I live here, oh, about 1,000, 1,500 meters to the ocean. So I'm really moderate, moderated by, by the ocean here. So it is quite cool still in the summer, but it's dry. I do a number of things for a living. I run a business called Cultivated, which is a urban flower farm and flower design business. I write a gardening column under the same name, Cultivated, and I teach at the university in creative nonfiction. I've been gardening here for nine years. The garden is divided roughly into four areas that I'll speak to. It is an urban-suburban setting, so it's about a third of an acre that's under cultivation. And the front area is on a street, and there is a long yew hedge that I planted there and some hornbeams along the driveway. And behind that is um, there is no lawn any longer. It is um, kind of a wild garden in the front. We have deer pressure here. So I've gardened that front area in the style of kind of new naturalism and the kind of Udolf style with um, perennials predominantly. The area behind that is fenced and it's a bit of a playpen garden that tends to take the overflow from what happens in the back. And in the back, which is fully fenced again, uh, is the flower farm component and some perennial borders as well and a greenhouse. So in the front, behind the yew and the hornbeam, in your more wild area, what kinds of plants characterize this section? I've used tall perennials predominantly to um, create privacy. Um, so Eupatorium, Rudbeckia herbstone, I, I sort of look at it now as what was popular <laughs> around 2001. Melinas, um, I use drumstick allium in there. Uh, some lysimachia. All the plants I'm speaking to right now are deer proof, but I've shifted and I was using a lot of New Zealand plants, which are 
just on the edge for us, they tend to rot out here because of the amount of rainfall that we get. And mm -hmm. I do have some heavy clay out there as well. So mm -hmm. I was pushing too hard on the zone. And this year, I think I'll, I'll lose Melianthus. Um, now that I am more committed to the flower farming, I've found that the dahlias can get popped in to that area and the deer will leave them alone actually. Mm. So once the bulk of the plants grow up, the eupatorium is about seven feet tall. So the deer tend not to like penetrate. Mm -hmm. uh, they just tend to walk down the path and nibble at the sidelines and I can afford those losses. With the plants that I'm seeing in my head, the eupatorium, the drumstick allium, the melianthus, the rudbeckia. So I'm seeing some purples and mauve and green, of course, and the rudbeckias are these sort of veering towards yellow or veering towards brown. What colors are we seeing here overall? Well, interesting that you mentioned that because I would go with a palette. So my initial palette when we removed the lawn, put in a new driveway, I planted some, you know, hornbeams in there and the U in order to create this very sort of formal structure around what I had planned to be quite a wild garden. Um, I wanted everything in plums and silvers. <laughs> and I can laugh about that now because then <laughs> shortly after the plum and silver phase came the um, sort of orange phase. So then I got into Heleniums and, and GMs. You know, mm. I think many of your listeners are probably become plant collectors as well, but you get convinced of a certain palette and I would, you know, move things around, move plants around constantly, trying to create a, some kind of a vignette and was that kind of a perennial gardener. I've since changed, but uh, I was very concerned about color and heavily influenced by a garden book by Nori and Sandra Pope called Color by Design. Describe a little bit about your house and then move us into your back garden. Um, the house is from 1928. Um, it's a stuccoed house. One significant thing for the garden, which is unfortunate, is that it is elevated above the ground. So it's not, a, 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 there are steps walking up into the house and there are steps walking down mm -hmm. at the back. So that immersive feeling of being within the garden. I've never had that luxury here. From the house, I look down upon the garden and really do tend to see its structure. One thing that really improved my garden immensely in the back was just embracing its um, its rectangularity. And I had these, you know, curved borders, and I, I still do. But now I've, I've put a, a pergola down the middle of the back that is 32 feet long, greenhouse at one end, and on either side of the structure are these annual beds that there's about six of them, and they're, again, 32 feet long and four feet wide, and that is the flower production area. And it, not only is it fantastically fun for me as a gardener, it has really actually improved the garden overall because I've just finally embraced this linearity, mm -hmm. let's say, where, you know, we had, there's some symmetry to it now. There's a, a central, albeit small, but a central viewpoint. Mm -hmm. And what I've done that's been quite simple is just put T-posts in the ground and trellis and grow annual vines 
up things until the roses establish themselves. I've trained cucumbers up vines and anything to kind of fill in and create um, sort of walls and screens that you can look through and pass through. Not only has it changed the wind as well, like reduce the wind that would hit the house and kick off the house and speed up. Um, so I've created a little more heat through doing that, but I've also created this intimacy and, and privacy. So when I'm out working in the garden, you know, I can actually get lost. Would you say you were a writer first or a gardener first? I think that I was a gardener first. I grew up in downtown Toronto and my exposure to outdoor things was predominantly wilderness in the Canadian Shield. So you know, lakes, cottages, camps, that kind of construct, not cultivated places. So it was urban and then ex extremely wild. And it wasn't until I was 19 and living on Martha's Vineyard that I met a woman, Heidi Schmidt, who I desperately wanted to work for. And she was an herbalist. And she took me under her wing and mentored me. I lived with her. I, I came to run her little greenhouse operation. I just learned so much, not only about um, botany, but also about environmental philosophy. And that led me to do an undergraduate degree in environmental studies. And I would return to Martha's Vineyard in the summers to work. I'd say she taught me how to garden. She created the narrative around plants and trusted me and told me I, I had a green thumb and encouraged me to um, do whatever I liked in the garden, actually. And I, and I did, probably over a four or five year period. My own first garden uh, came when I was 24. I had um, an inheritance from my mother who had died when I was a teenager, and I bought land, one of the only places I could afford, on a remote island in British Columbia called Savory Island. It's about six hours north of Vancouver and then water taxi only, and there was no electricity or running water. But I was able to buy a piece of waterfront in those days with a little cabin on it and spent five years there developing a garden um, pretty much hacked out of the bush and certainly learned about, um, you know, sort of slash and burn agriculture. I kind of look at it now and the fertility <laughs> that I had. It was a very sandy island, wonderful beaches. I even sold salad and flowers back then, um, just building raised beds out of slabs cut from an Alaskan mill and hauling rainwater in my wheelbarrow and uh, really pretty salty. <laughs> and you, how, how did you transition from there into the next phase of your life? Well, I, I did have to get off the island eventually. I started to hatch a plan that I was going to become a landscape architect. And this is the days before the internet. I mean, there were, I had a party line on the, on the, for a telephone, and, and I guess this was the mid-90s. But I somehow learned of doing an internship at Kew Gardens in England and, you know, barely had the money to pull it off. But I did go over to England and um, had asked to be placed in the herbaceous department and was assigned to the Alpine <laughs> Division. Describe Kew for listeners who might not be familiar with it. Uh, Kew Gardens is one of the 
most significant botanical gardens in the world. I believe it was started in the 17th century, maybe the 18th century. I associate it most with Sir Joseph Banks, one of the most significant plant explorers of, you know, Britain's colonial endeavor. Uh, there are glass houses, there are chinoiserie follies, there are long borders. It's a tremendous um, institution in terms of plant research, um, plant genetics, genetic diversity, seed banks. So from Q, you become a mom and you go where? I um, rented various houses in Victoria, you know, as a single parent. Um, I'd say there was a gap there between the time I was 29 and until this home, which, um, you know, there was a lot of movement. And so I did not have a garden of my own, even if I did garden in various places. I went to graduate school in the United States um, and lived in Boston and lived in Maine. And my American husband and I moved back to Victoria, to this house. So how and when did you make the transition from being a standard home gardener to a flower farmer? Around the time that I um, was planning my wedding on Martha's Vineyard, I ran into a friend who was a, a farmer who gave me a copy of a magazine called Growing for Market because I was talking about my wedding flowers and wasn't sure what to do. And uh, in that magazine, I found an article by Aaron Benzikin from something called Florette, which I had never heard of. And I went to the website and there was um, there were workshops available in flower farming. I took one of these workshops and complete game changer for me, that workshop in terms of my approach to gardening. And so what I have done in the back here is um, move to kind of a rotational succession system of planting. So it's February right now. And to give you an example, I have hoops that are, you know, just um, kind of electric fencing poles with three-quarter inch pipe bent over them and plastic and underneath them are um, anemones and ranunculus which in this zone are again a little bit on the edge but sh they were fine last year so should be okay this year and a number of um, overwintered annuals so here um, fall sown cornflowers and some sweet peas and um, some biennials, some wallflowers and honesty, things that I'm hoping can make it through the winter in order for an early bloom. And those, all those hoops will then be reworked again in the late spring. Uh, the sweet peas probably all be out by June or early July, and I will move then to dailies, and I'll keep rotating the crops. And this has been one of this real challenges, one of the main challenges for me in that I don't have a lot of room because it is an urban garden. And so it be, becoming very efficient about rotation has um, become really important to me. And I'm by no means a master of this. But if you factor in then how many succession sowings you can do of something like bupleurum that you might use for filler for bouquets, uh, it becomes this real sort of juggling act of constantly um, sowing and constantly rotating without tiring the soil. So 
amending as well. But it just looks beautiful in the summer. I'll say that I have to use almost like a bamboo pole or a rake to walk between the rows when I'm cutting in the mornings if I don't want to get super wet. I really like to photograph as well. And I really enjoy being quiet and alone in the garden. I think we have to find things that fit our personality. And for as extroverted as I can be, um, I'm usually somewhat in control of that extroversion and can retreat from it quite quickly uh, back to working alone in the garden. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. In today's Dispatches from the Home Garden, we're speaking with Kristen Giel, a gardener, floral designer, and writer in Victoria, British Columbia. One of my favorite quotes from Kristen is this, quote, appreciate the fact that you wouldn't be gardening at all if you weren't the type to run long on hope. Love this about yourself and let go. We'll be back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place, and I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're back after a break to hear more of the gardening story of Kristen Giel, a gardener, writer, and floral designer in Victoria, B.C. Welcome. In this garden, describe your favorite flowers, their colors, their scents, how you use them. Oh, it's the time of year for me to be obsessing on Icelandic poppies and my poor, terrible germination rates and sourcing the seeds. Oh, my goodness. Uh, the the new Italian Calibri uh, large uh, Icelandic poppies, difficult to get the seeds in Canada. Finally, where some growers are pooling resources to bring them in um, in some smaller amounts. And uh, they're one of my absolute favorite flowers. Um, the, the crinkly texture, uh, the um, it, delicacy and of the stem, and the angles that they assume and how they pose. Um, sweet peas, uh, be, they just do so well for me in this climate. It's We have a long, long, cool spring, and it gives them time to establish and some of the seeds that I um, use from the United Kingdom, they reach seven feet tall oh. in the summer and just with stems, sometimes 18 inches long or close to two feet, sometimes it feels like. I love corals and I love corals because corals move into orange or they can move into pink and they're warm they're cheerful i'm actually in my office right now which is painted it's called sunlit coral which sounds so cheesy but it's actually quite beautiful and um i i just i love corals and on the other end of it um, i really love green so i do grow a lot of variations of green um i think uh, Cobea scandens, the cup and saucer vine, would be mm. an example of a very luminous green. Um, uh, cress and, you know, seeds, frosted explosion grass. Last year I grew a lot of uh, Bells of Ireland and Malucella and Buplerum, that, that citrusy, chartreuse, 
stunning and and so necessary. One thing I also wanted to mention was how being a perennial gardener prior to becoming a flower farmer and, and working in floral design just has served me so well because all the time that I spent you know, looking at plant forms and shapes and deciding, you know, gee, do I need a plume here? Or do I need a spike here? Do I need a, a circular flower? Or, you know, do I need a, a, a kind of linear um, flower? You know, playing with form and texture in a perennial garden and in garden design is just enacted fully in floral design. And uh, some of the same principles apply. In this garden... Are there life memories or life memories that came before this garden that you have tried to include in some fashion in this garden? I I do hold many many memories in this garden. Um, I look at it now as um, an empty nester. My son has gone off to university uh, as a place in which he enacted his childhood and the pets that we have had um, in this garden, and I'm thinking in particular of these two guinea pigs that I let free range <laughs> for years, um, and our dog would sit back there in the border. They would hide under the ladies' mantle and snuffle around and come out into the grass like little sheep and eat, and the dog would somehow protect them from the eagles. That um, The pets and um, years ago playing badminton in the yard before I took everything over um, in the garden. It, it feels like as my son grew and, and stopped playing at home, I now have fully claimed all of the, the land here. One of my favorite memories is a, a garden party that I splurged on last year where we set a 25-foot long table down this underneath the pergola and uh, hung those bistro lights across and created this sort of tunnel because the sweepies were coming up the sides. Um, dahlias were about five feet tall. This was in August. And, you know, fortuitously, we had a hot evening, which is quite rare here, so you could wear a little party dress. And I did a um, flower installation down the center of the tables and um sort of invented something by, you know, using uh, downspouts that I had cut in half and siliconed the ends and just filled this trough with flowers. And uh, it was just a beautiful evening. I, I feel that my garden is an extension of, you know, so many different parts of my intellectual life that I have been able to manifest here. And um, with my undergraduate degree in environmental studies and, you know, studying with Vandana Shiva and studying at Kew. And later, you know, I became quite involved in green politics. It's just been starting cultivated has and being able to sell local flowers and really make a difference has um, really made me feel more empowered as a woman, as a business person, as a gardener, just as a human being that I'm able to take action and create beauty. And um, it's become so fundamental to who I am that I don't know where I would be without gardening at, at this point. Do you have a favorite time in the garden? In uh, full bloom. 
full bloom, full on summer. And I'd say summer's in the morning. It's a time of harvest. It's wonderful. You describe your gardening column as a literary gardening column. Thank you. That is a an intentional position. And I have um, deep respect for the essay as a form. Of course, the word comes from the French verb essayer, to try. And how I like to phrase it and approach the column is that I'm not going to pedantically tell someone the truth. I am going to endeavor to find the truth and the pursuit of truth, whether that is, you know, why do we grow in enclosures or, you know, why do these colors work together? In I feel it invites the reader in to discover along with me rather than me having made the discovery and then telling someone about it. And I mean, obviously you can tell I teach writing right now, but it has, um, that voice, the voice of the essay, the first person, I've always loved it. And um, I think that nonfiction can do great things, actually. What I love is the fact that a garden is creative nonfiction. It is. That's what it is. (laughs) And I never thought about it before. I approach things synesthetically. You know, I'm strongly right-brained, but have enough left brain to be able to pull things off. And uh, I allow myself to meander and I allow myself to meander in the garden. And those are some of the most wonderful times for me where I do flit from job to job and uh, I do sometimes lose track of what it was I was meant to do. Um, However, um, there is a certain, you know, artistry, I suppose, to working in that manner where um, I can move through different tasks and tend to different things at one time. What are your hopes for the future? Uh, Personally, I would really love to pull my columns together into a book and, and do that in a way where I can marry some of the visuals to the writing. I, that's becoming increasingly important to me for the gardening community as a whole. I think that, you know, this uh, localism and the, you know, resurgence of urban productivity, you know, look back to 2009 with Obama and Michelle Obama's garden and even back further in history to the victory gardens, uh, you know, after the war or during the war. Um, And even before then, you know, there is the concept of the political informing how we garden. And I certainly see my garden here as on that continuum that, you know, I am doing what I'm doing here in order to make some kind of difference. Kristen Giel is a gardener, writer, and floral designer in Victoria, British Columbia. She is the founder of Cultivated, an urban flower farm and design studio, and a literary gardening column which appears every two weeks in the Black Press group of newspapers. Kristen also teaches creative nonfiction at the University of British Columbia in Victoria. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Thank you for listening. 
For this week's audio archive or to subscribe to the podcast, please visit mynspr.org. For more information, including many photos and information on Kristen's writing, her floral design, and design workshops, please visit jewelgarden.com. For daily photos and more, follow Cultivating Place on Instagram or Facebook. If you are interested in sharing your garden as part of our Dispatches from the Home Garden series, please visit the Contact Us page at jewelgarden.com for more information. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and jewelgarden.com. The program is made possible in part by the Stanley Smith Horticultural Trust. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.